We being on the land, the people came down to us to the waterside with show of great courtesy, bringing to us potatoes, roots, and two very fat sheep. Thus Sir Francis Drake in his journal of the 28th of November 1577, somewhere off the coast of Chile. He could have been the first to introduce the potato to England, but its introduction to Ireland came much later and is often ascribed to Walter Raleigh. The botanist John Houghton wrote in his weekly bulletin in 1699, The potato is a vexiferous herb with esculent roots bearing winged leaves and a bell flower. This, I have been informed, was brought first out of Virginia by Sir Walter Raleigh, and he, stopping at Ireland, some were planted there, where it thrived well and to good purpose. For in three successive wars, when all the corn above ground was destroyed, this supported them. For the soldiers, unless they had dug up all the ground where they grew and almost sifted it, could not extirpate them. From whence they were brought to Lancashire, where they are very numerous, and now they begin to spread all the kingdom over. But which potato? Was it the Solanum tuberosum escalentum, or the Ipomea batatas? Theodore Fitzgibbon. I think there's a lot of confusion, because certainly the potato that is in legend that Sir Walter Raleigh brought to Ireland was not the Virginian potato that we know today, it was a sweet potato, there's no question of that. And it was also the sweet potato that was first taken to Spain by the Spaniards because they were in South America then, in Peru and Quito and so on, um, conquering it, and they brought back all these different exotic plants. And uh, certainly the, the, the things that Sir Walter Raleigh traded for, the, the vegetables, were the sweet potato. And when people say potatoes have been in Ireland since Sir Walter Raleigh's time, which is the 16th century, potatoes certainly have, but not the potato we eat today, as far as I can ascertain. I think the, the Virginian potato came much later um, from settlers in Virginia. And I think a lot of these were also used in trade, and they came back, they came back to Ireland, I think, through Spain, through Europe, through England. But um, previously to that, there was a root that was very common here, commonly eaten, called skerret, S-K-E-R-R-E-T-T, or it's spelt sometimes with an I, but because the spelling, we know, is not general. And that is very like a potato. I have, in fact, eaten it. And uh, when, there's lots of recipes for that everywhere. And, but no mention of the potato in, in any early book that I have come across. I'm not saying that it didn't exist, but I haven't actually come across it. Over the years, many myths attached to the potato. It was widely regarded as an aphrodisiac. In Burgundy, it was thought to cause leprosy. In Prussia, it was blamed for scrofula, rickets and consumption. In Kohlberg, in 1744, the citizens, although starving, would not touch potatoes. Frederick the Great sent them a wagon load and got the answer, the things of neither taste nor smell, not even the dogs will eat them, so what are they to us? Elsewhere, they were thought to cure many ailments, including rheumatism and toothache. Three years ago, I was trying the potato cure. This is quite simple, too. You just steal a potato, put it in your jacket pocket, and carry it about with you wherever you go. In due course, the potato shrivels and at the same time becomes soft and squashy. 
Sometimes you get quite a shock when you put your hand in your pocket and touch this horrible object, which feels as though it would burst into awful deliquescence at any minute. It never does, though. Eventually, the potato, now about one-third of its original size, begins to harden. It gets harder and harder until finally it is like a stone. You can have quite a lot of fun by pulling it out of your pocket and asking people to guess what it is. They never can, unless they have tried the potato cure themselves. Perhaps a quite an efficient uh, way of treating a sore throat. Uh, you uh, boil potatoes and then carefully take them from the pot. Put them into a woolen stocking and put the stocking round the neck. That certainly will relieve the pain. Is mashed, might... mashed potato? No, no, boiled, any, just pick them out of the pot. Uh, and uh, it will certainly, as I say, reveal, relieve the, the pain of the sore throat, but it might also burn the neck, so you'd have to watch for it. Mm-hmm. Another uh, folk cure is for an infected whitlow, an infected finger, uh, The water in which potatoes are boiled is poured over, out of the pot, out of the potato pot, onto the finger, and it will certainly uh, burn the finger and probably uh, relieve the inflammation of the whitlow. But there's an old Dublin cure with potatoes, cure for warts. The potato is split in two and the raw surface rubbed on the... the wart. Uh, Then, uh, having done that, the potato is buried in the ground. Uh, And in case you need to repeat, you can repeat it a week later. That, of course, is a wasting cure. It's like putting the snail on the thorn or the bit of meat or the pin which you point at them. All these are wasting cures and the cure warts. But another a quite useful cure in its day was a poultice made of potato starch, <clears throat> which you would put on a chest that was infected in even pneumonia. Uh, and of course, if you wanted to poison your friends, you could grind up a potato apple. Uh, these are the, it's like a tiny green tomato. It grows on the stalk. It grows on the stalk. And uh, you can grind it up and it will certainly poison your enemies if you want somebody poisoned. And uh, there are a few other uh, uh, minor uh, forms of, of curing, but I think that's, uh, these are the, are the most of them. Uh, there's another method uh, about potatoes, and that is that if... Uh, the potatoes come over the ground when in the ground. If they appear over the ground, they will turn green and people will be very much afraid of them. And of course, people are afraid of the stalks of the potato. Uh, they, they wouldn't touch them at all when they're green and fresh. Of course, when they're faded, it's all right. Dr. Paddy Logan. Despite all the myths and misconceptions, the potato quickly asserted itself as the single most important item of diet in Ireland. Martin J. Kelly. Oh, it was terribly important. There are plenty of records available that show that it was the staple diet of the majority of the people from about 1650. And that was 
at a period far before it became a staple diet of any other country. But it was um, after about 1700 that it really took over. Uh, uh, from there on, we had a period of maybe a hundred years of peace, and the population increased at a great extent, to a great extent. And most of that population was sustained by the potato. Of course, there was a great crop for supporting a population. Wonderful. Its production was very good. It's calculated, some authority calculated that a hundred acres on the potatoes will support for a year 420 people. Now, a hundred acres on the wheat will support uh, 230 people. Well, uh, you know, 100 acres under beef is calculated to only support about 15 people for a year. So it certainly leads the league in actually the number of people it could support. Another great attraction, of course, is that it could be sown on land that wouldn't uh, grow such crops as wheat or barley or even oats sometimes. It'll grow virtually on any soil. Nearly, almost on any soil, if it's... um, gets a certain amount of fertiliser of one type or another and gets um, plenty of rainfall, which it does get in this country. When you have to live on potatoes uh, for uh, three quarters of your food or more than that, uh, you try to make them as attractive as possible and it's very important that you should. Now, uh, I remember uh, at a fair in a village on the Cavendleetrum border called Ballamagovern they put up drinking tents on the fair green. And you also got food in those tents. Well, in the tent, there was one of these enormous black pots. The kind of thing that you'd see in the witches with a pantomime. Uh, or the crock of gold. That sort of pot. And this was filled with potatoes which were boiling on the turf. And uh, the essential thing in preparing this was that the potatoes be very, very well washed. And when they were washed and the water teamed off them, uh, they were mashed up with the ordinary masher and uh, uh, chopped scallions or chopped uh, curly kale or any greens that were available were added. Uh, And uh, that was sold. You got a bowlful measured by the two hands of the fellow who was giving it out uh, for threepence. You got a penny back when you brought the bowl and the spoon back. Uh, That was a a very efficient way of replacing uh, and replenishing your stores of vitamin C, which uh, in early August would be pretty low because July was a very, very hungry month. Well, of course, uh, the man that gives us the best description of Irish country living was Arthur Young, who came here in the 1770 period. And uh, he had heard of the, he had heard the importance of the potato in Ireland and uh, he gave us very good descriptions of how important it was. But um, he criticised the people who were saying that the, that the potato was a sign of poverty and that it was a very bad food. And he wrote this, When I see a people of a country with well-formed, vigorous bodies and their cottages swarming with children. When I see the men athletic and their women beautiful, I know not how to believe them subsisting on an unwholesome diet. Uh, he's, he, he, actually, he says, um, the Irish, you know, as regards diet, certainly didn't suffer because, the, you know, while they had the potato. You know, he described himself as, he described the situation as them having a good belly full of potatoes. Yeah. And they had that. They, they lived on enormous quantities of potatoes. Oh, they did. It's calculated that the family of um, six at that time would use 
about two and a half underweights of potatoes a week. But uh, presumably that means that uh, such thing as fowl and pigs and the dog and the cat and all that were also getting potatoes. But still it's an enormous uh, usage of potatoes. I think Young has a description, in fact, of the, the extended family sitting down to eat. Yes. One uh, description says that um, the potatoes were usually put in some sort of a container in the middle of a floor, very often what they call a skib made of rods, Around it were gathered the family, with the father and mother sitting on stools or on tough creels. The children were squatting on the floor, and the dogs, pigs, fowl, cats and all that carry on were there to share in the repast, you know. It was a great uh, picture, if you like, of plenty, anyway. What had the Irish peasantry eaten before the potato? Well, they seemed to have uh, a great herds of cattle and they seem to have uh, subsisted a lot on the products of the cattle on what were called white meats that's butter uh, milk in various forms cheese, curds, all that carry on they also of course eat beef and they had their pigs of course and then they had game but until say the 1650s the potato formed no part of their diet from then on it was a major portion of their diet and uh, apart from the fact that the potato was thought to be an aphrodisiac, it definitely seems to have shaped the population of Ireland. Very much so. Well, there's no way some of the poor parts of the country could have supported the population that they did. This is around the 1800 period without the potato. I recognise now the townland that I grew up in myself. Uh, in 1770, in 1707, those, uh, to record those had nobody there. In 1750, a census showed four families there. And in, 16, or in 1850, at the time of the Griffith valuation, there was no fewer than 30 families there. Well, now, they were on land, you know, that wouldn't grow anything else satisfactorily except a potato. This is in County Cabin? No, it's in Contrast Common. Contrast Common. In the, yeah. in the parish of Castlereagh. So I'd say the potato had a great influence in uh, bringing people to settle in parts of the country where they'd never exist without the potato, like, you know. From a crowd in the roadway, ten voices called out to Katie. Have you it also? Katie was shocked. Lord Jesus, what am I supposed to have, she called. The potato disease, the potato disease, was called from every side. Katie said she didn't feel anything, that she was just an old woman who, thank God, worked and ate. When it was explained to her that it was the potatoes that were diseased, she said she hadn't seen hers for some time and didn't know anything about such disease. An acquaintance then said to her that the newspapers had been storming for some time about it, but no attention had been paid to them, as it had been regarded that, as on other occasion, one half of it was not true and the other half was lies. But now the disease is there, nobody knows from whence it came. Every field is as black as a shroud. It is a gruesome pestilence. The potatoes have pestilence spots and whoever eats them, man or beast, must die. Think, Katie, what will we eat till next year? The Great Famine, when it came, was not entirely unexpected. There had been warnings. 
I suppose uh, even the potatoes that were brought from Spain that had diseases with them, which progressively maybe became worse under our climate, and you had uh, failures. Uh, I think there's about um, 28 failures recorded of the potato before the, the Great Famine hit at all. 28 different years? 28 different years, not all together, not all one after the other now, but at intervals. It was recorded that there was an uprising in Cork in 1728 because the potato had failed there. In the area we're in now, in the celebrity area, there was a desperate shortage of potatoes in 1739, 1740, over that winter. And it was due to a terrible hard frost that killed all the potatoes and brought in uh, famine. And uh, you had the local landlords bringing in meal to try and keep the people alive. And you had them setting up, um, setting up relief schemes. Actually, as a result of those relief schemes, we now have this... Uh, Obelisk, a very f- spectacular building between Minuta and Serbid. We also have a thing called the Wonderful Barn between Minuta and or between Serbid and Leakslip, set up as a relief measure to give uh, some employment to starving people caused by the failure fail of the potato. You know. So there was plenty of warning of the big famine of forty-five. Well, there was certainly. It was, yes, there was. Uh, the warnings on the, uh, were not on the same scale, or the, uh, the the troubles were not on the same scale as uh, during the Great Famine. But there were warnings, as you say. And the government was aware of it? Very much so. As I understand it, the government got its first warning that blight was hitting the country from the Isle of Wight. It didn't get it from Ireland now. It got it from the Isle of Wight in August 1845. And then there was, uh, about two months afterwards, it was reported that uh, all the crops in the Dublin area were bad. And at that stage... The government was well aware that there was a disaster coming and there was memos going from one department to the other saying what's going to happen if this uh, hits the Irish potato crop, should they have nothing else. So they were, the, the appreciation that the potato was very important and they were very much afraid of what would happen if it failed very badly. But the relief schemes didn't measure up despite the fact they had that warning. No, no. Uh, I think initially the government did rather well insofar as that uh, when they saw, the, blight, when they saw the, the, the famine developing first, they did bring in meal, and for a year or two there was no real hardship. Then some other policy took over and uh, there wasn't, the, the government wasn't so generous in its actions, and it was really from 1847 onwards that um, the calamities began to occur. The people were weakened by then. They had less help. And um, whatever reserves they had, I suppose, up to then were being exhausted. So really, Black 47, of course, was the bottom of the pit as far as the famine is concerned. Some ascribe the disease to electricity, some to atmospheric influence, some to wet season, some to wet, drought and frost combined, some to insects or animalculae, some to ruptures of the cell, some to decomposition of proteins, others to fungi, others to a diseased and vitiated constitution in the potato, weakened by long and high cultivation. Others unite nearly all of the above. Others still ascribe it to a direct visitation of providence, and yet another class declare that they know nothing about it. I think these last are the safest for the present. People always said that uh, 
uh, the, the fairies brought the blight. And they also said another cause for the blight was the using of the guan, supplies of guano that came in that produced the very heavy crops. Despite the ubiquitous blight, the potatoes survived and remained the chief source of nourishment. Not all potatoes were killed, funny enough. In the t- town and I was born, you know, there's, a, rec- there's a, a tradition of one man who sowed potatoes, even in the worst year of the famine, away on a bog garden, away from everything else, and they were a perfect crop. They got no blight, through, probably through being isolated. So probably it was from crops like that that the seed, you know, survived. And then I presume um, they probably imported them maybe from uh, areas that weren't badly affected. But certainly the acreage, um, there was no dramatic fall away from potatoes after the famine. It recalled that in 1851 there was something like 800,000 acres in the country. That's in the 22 counties, of course. That's ten times more than we have now. You know, so they didn't turn their back on the potatoes because of the famine. You know. People believed very much in putting things like any animal entrails they had or fish guts or anything like that made a dreadful stink but they grew specially good potatoes and of course nowadays you don't see this because the varieties mature earlier and they're allowed to sprout and all that but there were no potatoes so that it was such a you don't realize the importance of the first crop of potatoes if you're suffering from scurvy uh, and general uh, poor nutrition for two months, it, it would be like manna. We had a peculiar method of growing potatoes, of planting them. In the rough land of County Leitrim, one is always surprised to know that the amount of potatoes was at least equal to the national average. And it was very rough land, so we evolved a, a set of special instruments, which nobody else knew how to use, alloy, mm-hmm. which was made out of the trunk of a ash tree, shod with iron. And it took a very skillful man. Uh, what he did was the mid built uh, dug narrow beds, but just by turning over the sod. Or, yeah, manure was put on. We evolved a method of putting on the manure, too. Uh, There were half cylinders uh, made to fit on the back of an ass. Uh, And the cylinders were uh, not creels, not a creel in the order. You've seen creels, but not those. Uh, This was called a pardog. There were pardogs. And uh, with a bottom. The bottom uh, could drop down, so you didn't have to unload them. The manure fell out, you unloaded it in, then the donkey walked along. Well, having done that, you turned over the sods with the loy, uh, and then came to set the potatoes. Now, the, the land is so heavy that potatoes would not come through uh, the rough tough soil so you made a hole and dropped the potato split into that and then filled the hole with very fine mould so that the potato when it started to grow was able to grow. Uh, 
they, it was a very uh, surprisingly hard, rough work, but it, you were able to grow potatoes. Then it was either be a wet season or a dry season. If it was a wet season, it was the, the ridges were raised up and would drain a bit. If it was a dry season, the covering of the heavy soil would retain uh, the dampness inside the ridge until the potato would get started. It was a naturally evolved method. Nobody in any other part of Ireland except... See, they had a great Irish word for the soil. It was called the lack lee, the grey flag. And and the only thing that could dig it was this uh, loy, which really was a hand plough. It was a plough that you worked by hand. You didn't lift it with the, the way you lift with an ordinary spade. You turned it over, dug, swept under it like the like the the shear of a plough, and just turned it over. Oh, it was a very skilful way, and the same way, digging it out. Uh, you never cut a potato. You know the way when you examine potatoes now, they've been cut up. But oh no, no skilful digger uh, would cut potatoes. With regards to the food aspect. I suppose the tiny little ones would just have been boiled. Well, we know they were. We've seen um, prints of cauldrons of of potatoes boiling in in on a in a cauldron over a fire. Three legged pot. Three legged pot. The crock, yes. And um, but also the in all, I have about three handwritten eighteenth century books at home from not particularly rich people, farmers' wives, and I mean quite comfortable middle class people, I suppose. And the only recipes, it's very curious for potatoes in those books, there's no recipe for it as a savoury. There are, where, they, where you do have skerrits used as a savoury, the only recipe for potatoes is a very elaborate, very beautiful pie, uh, which we would call a flan or a tart now, I suppose, which is mashed potato beaten up with sugar and eggs and butter and a little brandy, which, of course, was as cheap as water, practically, and a lot of egg yolks, and that was baked in, in pastry. And, of course, it rose up. It was rather like a very sweet, nice souffle. And it's still, this is fun, interestingly, this sort of idea is still carried on in Spain, who were really the um, first early protagonists of, of using the potatoes, because they make this uh, sweet colliemas, which is mashed potato mixed with egg white and sugar, which is then thrown into boiling fat, and they make these very light little balls of of um, beignets or sort of souffle type things. But uh, they're the only, plenty of potato pies and also they call it potato pudding, but they're all sweet. Of course, the most famous form of uh, Irish potato food was uh, box tea. Box tea, well, in order to make box tea, and the only reason why it isn't uh, almost a national dish is was the problem of preparing it. You had to grate the potatoes and grate them very thoroughly with a, a sleeve grater. It fitted on your arm, uh, like the old fashioned. Do you remember the sleeves that fellows who wrote clerks in offices used to wear, pull on, that sort of thing? You held it in your hand. The tinker, the local tinker, made it. You bought it from the tinker. And it fitted over your arm. It fitted up over to your, your elbow. arm, up to your elbow. And you grated like that. 
See, you held it, held it by the bottom there. You grated it over the bowl. And it was, it'd be, when you had the grating done, you had to wring out this stuff, this soft, mushy mess, uh, and made it into cakes, added flour to it, put it in the pot and boiled it. And then you could keep it for a week, even two weeks. And uh, you sliced the big, thick cakes that was in and warmed it for breakfast. It was grand. Uh, having made the box tea, uh, and you did the grating into a bowl, uh, then when you poured off the water, there was a deposit of starch from the potatoes left in the bottom of the bowl. Uh, you scraped that off, added... Uh, uh, buttermilk or ordinary milk and uh, flour and made a pancake of it and that was a gorgeous pancake and I think you could also make that commercially and if you did it should be called Derry Pancakes because during the siege of Derry uh, they discovered that starch pancakes made of starch and tallow were a very good food and they also cured diarrhoea which was endemic during the siege of Derry. After the famine opportunities for employment at home were scarce but the weather conditions in Scotland often demanded rapid harvesting of potatoes and gaffers mainly from Eccle gathered squads of up to 100 people and took them off to the Scottish potato fields. 50-60 years ago or so they went what they call Torty Hoken. There were some, the stronger members of the family dug them with forks, drills. And then later on, of course, years and years later on, the tractor came into its own and they were spun out with a the, with the spinner. They were the green crops. And that were for the early potatoes. <coughs> well, then. The children or the youngers were for pick it, picking the potatoes. And then if a whole family went, the mother would probably only be out part-time and she'd have to wash the clothes, uh, do the laundry work and the cooking. And that, they, they, of course, they, they lived close to the farms in disused stables and buyers that were cleaned out when the farmer could allow uh, his animals out in the summer weather. And they were just white washed up, and beds of bales of straw. There was no bales at the time, but just lumps of straw. And <coughs> there were the bodies. The work started in June, of course. The, the hoken they used to call it, hoken the t- the titties. And you, uh, uh, the uh, young boys and girls left school at twelve, and um, they went across to Scotland, but their fathers, their mothers or their aunts their, and uh, the, the work was it was hard work uh, down on their knees picking spuds and the stronger ones digging them hooking them as they called it and there'd be they called it, every, every two was known as a grape and four was a double grape and they had two baskets, one for big Titties and one for small ones, and the the, the two pay, uh, gatherers, they they, they had uh, sacking sacks tied around them. They called them brats, and they were down on their knees for nine hours a day, uh, picking spuds.
you were told to go up there and get your boxes. You'd get the tatey boxes then, where they used to put the seed potatoes in wintertime, but they would, this was early. The boxes were taken down. Uh, you and your bedmate, each you take two boxes, and the two boxes, when they were left down flat on the floor, they'd reach about six by four. You'd go then and you'd get four or five bags of straw, barley straw, and pack it into put them on top of the boxes, mm-hmm. make your bed as best you can, do what you can about it. So I know that me and my mate, the two was, and we were only about nine feet away, and you had to do as you were told, about eight or nine feet away from a big old wheel that was inside, lying to an old mill that was there in ancient times. And there was more rats there than what you'd see at a woman about here the chickens or hens. And when you go to bed at night, that's when you see the rats. And the more you played with the rats, or the more you tried to, to, to frighten the rats, the bolder they were getting. There were some times that you'd be scared of them. Several times they were, they were scared of them. The Tarty Hookers. Here in Ireland, there's always been a wide variety of potatoes available, but the search for new and improved strains goes on. Harry Kyo of Anfuris Tholunthish in Carlo. At the moment, we're raising about 80,000 seedlings each year from true seed. These are crosses, aren't they? These are crosses between different varieties or seedlings with particular resistance to various diseases and so on. These are the traditional potatoes that we all know, Golden Wonders records. Yes, we have used a lot of the traditional varieties, but we have found, say, particularly with Golden Wonder, we have done a lot of crosses with Golden Mother with an awful lot of different varieties and seedlings and so on, but we have never got anything of any use from it. So it's all, all the seedlings are too late. But basically when we started, a lot of our, say, we were, we were uh, selecting uh, for, for fairly extreme blight resistance. And from this programme, we start off originally in the glass house, we grow the seedlings there to keep them separate. And then we go up to the Wicklow Mountains and we grow them in the field in the Wicklow Mountains in families and we select them each year. You just pick out the better types. Why in the Wicklow so, Mountains? Well, the Wicklow Mountains is used particularly to keep uh, the potatoes free of viruses because although a lot of people didn't think so, um, our country, the whole of this island, is relatively free of, of aphids uh, that, that actually spread most of the virus diseases. And we, we did some work with Dr. Ocknan in UCD originally and, he, and uh, we found... That uh, that Wicca was as good as even Donegal for 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 this purpose. It's remote. It's fairly it's remote. We good yeah. isolation, and uh, anyway, we grow them there to keep them virus free. And we we it the this testing goes on for about ten to twelve years. But you you start eighty thousand new potatoes in effect every year. Every year, different varieties. Uh, the, the, well, every one of them is a potential new variety. But after after the after we we grow about forty thousand of those in the field the first year, the second year this goes down to about four to five thousand, and in the end, after ten to twelve years, we may be left with one or two that are maybe of some use either here or in the Medi- or outside of Ireland. At the, in the last ten years, to make our program viable, we have had to breed for 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 ex- seed export markets, particularly the UK and the Mediterranean. Now, with a bit of luck from our original programme to a large extent, one of our varieties uh, that we, we have produced and named six varieties to date 
and one of these in particular has shown considerable promise both, both in the UK where it's now becoming an important variety, this variety is Cara, and also this variety is shown to be a fairly versatile variety. It's, grow, it's grown now in, in Cyprus, Israel, Egypt, uh, Canary Islands, Spain, Portugal, and it, 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 there's a considerable potential. This year... Grown in a big way. Yes. This year there was 8,000 tonnes of... In 1983 there was, was 8,000 tonnes of cara seed exported from Ireland. There was also about another three to 4,000 tonnes grown, grown in Scotland for the UK itself. And, and this, do you get royalties off that? Well, then you should get some royalties off it, but uh, the, the country earnings at the moment would be something in excess of a couple of million in in, in exports uh, from this. Per annum. Per annum. And the, the potential is there for considerable increase in the seed acreage. Uh, if if Carroll continues to be successful in all these markets, and it is commercially accepted... How long is it established now? It's established now for three or four years, so I mean, there's very little. It, it is going very well in all the countries. We haven't had a setback in any of the countries, thank God, so far. And how come I've never heard of it? You haven't heard of it because it's not a variety. It's a variety uh, that's more suited to the UK consumer. Uh, there is some of it being sold here at the moment and grown, but it's on a very small scale. It's mainly sown, uh, sold, uh, grown for seed. And it's one. Of, it's the main seed seed grow, seed variety for seed potato seed at the moment. But you're saying the UK uh, customer likes a different potato than the Irish customer. Yes, uh, the UK uh, consumer prefers uh, a slightly mealy, slightly humid potato that doesn't disintegrate when you boil it. Whereas the Irish they don't house, have split skins. Yes, on their the Irish housewife and the majority of the Irish consumers prefers a mealy, dry potato that, that does tend to disintegrate when you boil it. Now, Do you just it, believe that, or have you figured No. There was a survey done recently by by the Rural Economy Section, Cahill Cowan and, the, and, and the colleagues in the Rural Economy Section, and they found that 58% of the Irish people preferred a mealy, dry potato. It depends what you're using them for, I think. Um, Belgium, who apparently was the home of chips... I don't know if you know that, but it's quite interesting. The first mention of chips was from a Belgian who came to England in 1879 and went to Scotland and wheeled his... Because chips were always been... Pommes frites had always been known in Belgium. And he wheeled his barrows around the streets of Scotland, did an enormous business uh, by selling bags of fried potatoes. And this habit caught on... And they're not mentioned at all before about 18, 1879. Edward, I think his name was Edward Mernier or some such name. And he and his wife had this little barrow. And um, so the reason you're talking about the difference in potatoes was that to make a really good chip, you need a waxy potato. Because otherwise... And also to do a lot of the very good French recipes, like pomana, which are slices of potato really cooked in butter, like a cake. Well, now, if you have a floury potato for that, it'll just go into a blob. You must have a potato which will stay separate. And I think, as ge- in generally speaking, the... Irish attempts at cooking the potato are rather plain, shall we say, <laughs> rather than being in it, saying anything worse. Um, they like the flowery potato because it mashes up into gravy and because it's easy to, you know, it's easy to eat. But if they were doing more elaborate dishes with the potato, they would find the flowery potato was very, very um, difficult to, impossible to use, in fact, with certain, certain dishes. I think this is the basic difference, is the difference in the cooking. Joan Dillon is a professional potato taster. 
about now I taste between 50 and 60 samples a day. I tried more, but I wasn't able to keep up with the tasting. And is it difficult, you know, do you have to rinse your mouth out between tastes? Yes, uh, yeah, because it's, uh, one flavour goes over to the next, uh, so it's the easiest way to be clear on the sure. sample you're working on. Yeah. And what, in fact, are you looking for? Do you have a scale you work to? Um, well, uh, we start uh, with disintegration and we go on to flavour and dryness, discoloration. And discoloration is the cold cooked potato? Uh, no, we do them on cooking first and then we leave them for 24 hours to see if they discolour more because it comes into the salad type potato. A lot of potatoes are inclined to turn black or brown. Yeah, and they would have been much use for making potato salad and that sort of thing. And that's uh, one of your big markets, presumably? Right, it's part of the market. Yeah. We do colour as well because different people like different colours. Now, that's the colour of the outside skin? No, no, this Or the colour of the flesh? Yes. Yes, and that goes from white... So deep yellow. Right up through cream yes. and light yellow yeah. and so on. Yes. Yeah. Then we do it from mealiness. Yes, that's the flouriness of the yes. potato. Utilisation type, whether it's a firm salad potato to a multi-purpose type and to a mealy dry potato to a very dry potato. I would like to think that... Um, we could get better potatoes today. Potatoes that I get are perfectly dreadful in general. And the home of the potato... I mean, you go to America and you see Irish potatoes advertised, which are grown there, and far better... I mean, what is the, what, what, what's the matter with all these um, spotted, awful things that one gets and these ungraded... We, you, we read that we're going to get graded potatoes, washed graded potatoes, or sometimes you can get washed potatoes, but very seldom are they ever graded. You often end up with three big ones in a bag and ten marbles and two middle-sized ones. So if you have a big family, it's almost impossible to cook them all together. And what I would like to see is a better quality potato here because really nothing's more delicious than a really good potato, properly cooked. But it's very difficult to do it some of the potatoes that are available today. John O'Hearn is chairman of the IFA Potato Growers. Theodora and the housewife of this country have a lot to blame for this situation at the present moment, because they're continually buying potatoes in unbranded bags. And as a result, the, the people that are not prepared to put up a good product are doing more harm to the professional grower that's there at the present moment. There are a lot of growers doing a proper job at the present moment with regard to grading and branding bags. But you have those people continually, and it's, look, you can go down to the Dublin market tomorrow morning and you see it yourself, I guarantee you there'd be 50, maybe 60% of the potatoes there in trucks and whatever that in, ungraded, in unbranded bags. And this is doing untold harm. And I'm sorry to say that this I will blame on our department because of the fact that they haven't implemented the grading standards that we got some four years ago. And you would want these grading standards yourselves? Well, I mean, it, it, it's a must, actually, John, and it's, it's more so now than ever that if we're talking about uh, an authority for, for uh, the industry, that without those uh, standards, you know, it's a waste of time. With changing times and eating habits, what acreage of potatoes have we now? In 1970, we grew some 56,000 hectares of potatoes. We're now down to 35,000 hectares of potatoes, a drop of, in the region of 21,000 hectares. The importance of the potato to the Irish is certainly declining, but nowhere has a vegetable had such an impact on the history and sociology of a country. It became for centuries the staple of our diet, after being introduced merely as a curiosity. Round as ball, some oval or egg fashion, 
which knobby roots are fastened onto the stalks with infinite number of thready strings.